you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Tonight on The Readout. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. William Russell, a White House aide who was at Trump's side just before he delivered those remarks on January 6th, meets again with the grand jury as special counsel Jack Smith's criminal investigation enters its final stages. Also tonight, the summer that American labor took a stand, Hollywood actors and writers are on strike, and flight attendants and UPS workers could be next. Plus, the culture war battles the right is choosing to fight, backing a music video that promotes gun violence and attacking, I am not making this up, Barbie. I'm Jason Johnson in for Joy Reid, and we begin tonight with just a few hours left in the day. Donald Trump says is the deadline set by special counsel Jack Smith for the twice impeached, twice indicted former president to appear before the grand jury investigating his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. At least that's that's what he told us. It was in the target letter that he received over the weekend. But as far as we can tell, Trump has remained at his New Jersey golf club. But that should be no surprise. Today, the grand jury did hear from a former White House aide who now works for Trump's 2024 campaign. William Russell was with Trump for much of the day on January 6th. You can see him there on the ellipse beside Trump before the former president addressed the crowd. It is not Russell's first time appearing before the grand jury, begging the question why he was asked to return, making it all the more interesting is the fact that Russell was never interviewed by the January 6th House Committee last summer. Remember that committee interviewed like more than a thousand people, but somehow Russell was not on that list and his name wasn't even mentioned in the committee's final report. There are still a lot of other questions surrounding this case, including when or if Trump will be indicted and if he is, what's he going to get charged with? What we know at this point are there are three key statutes mentioned in the target letter that could guide charges against Trump. There are also the questions surrounding all the others involved in the efforts to try and overturn the election, who might be cooperating with the special counsel, and who else could find themselves facing charges. This is a lot. So I have a fantastic panel to start off tonight. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, University of Alabama professor, and MSNBC legal analyst. Michael Steele, former RNC chair, MSNBC political analyst, and host of the Man of Steel podcast. And Brian Tyler Cohen, host of the No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen podcast and an MSNBC contributor. Thank you all so much for starting us off. We have a lot to talk about tonight. Joyce, I'll start with this. Um, I, like most of America, was riveted last summer by the January 6th hearings. It was one of the most highest rated things on TV. And I'm not being glib when I say that. It was amazing to see that kind of civic engagement from people across the United States. It is amazing to me that this William Russell guy was not included in anything last year, but Jack Smith has found them. Just from a legal standpoint, I, I mean, is, 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 is he crossing a T and dotting an I we haven't seen before? Is there something that Jack Smith might have gotten access to that the January 6th committee couldn't? I'm just curious as to what the significance of this is from a legal standpoint, because I'm surprised that this guy was overlooked. Well, we don't know for a fact that he was overlooked, Jason. It's really a curious situation. But federal prosecutors have a power that others don't. They have the subpoena power. And that means that throughout this process, Jack Smith has been able to obtain testimony from people 
he wants to hear from and that the January 6th committee may not have had success with. It's very likely that along the way, prosecutors were doing as they do, asking who was there, what was said. And in the course of eliciting that information almost by rote repeatedly with witnesses, this name may have surfaced as someone that they need to talk to. The reporting is that he was at Trump's side throughout that day. And something that prosecutors will be looking for are casual comments made by the president in the course of the day. Did he acknowledge being aware that he had lost the election? Did he perhaps say that he was happy to see violence, that he hoped violence would help him hang on to the presidency? Lots of value in a witness like this if, and it's a big one here because he's represented by lawyers representing other people in Trump's inner circle. But if he will tell the truth, prosecutors could learn a lot of interesting information. Michael Steele, you know, the more people who end up getting caught in this web, the more I think to myself, if I am a self-serving elected official, if I am a, a Republican, I am at least coming up with a plan B, right? Plan A is stay loyal to mm -hmm. Trump, attach yourself to him like a barnacle. If he goes down, maybe you jump off at the last minute. But smart people have a plan B. You don't stay in politics 20, 30, 40 years without having a plan B. What is the plan B right now behind the scenes for Republicans if this goes left? If one of these three massive investigations against President Trump ends up convicting him and it's a really ugly charge, worse than anything we've seen before, what's the plan B behind the scenes? Well, the plan B is that... Uh... <laughs> That's about it. Plan right B, there. B for bounce? I'm a bounce? I mean, I'm, I'm just be out? I just gave you plan B. We out. Drop the mic. Now, look, the, the, the bet is on Trump. The bet has always been on Trump. Um, you know, the, the plan B started with with DeSantis, but that plan B was was developed and put in put in motion, not by the base, but by the, the moneyed interest in the party, the, the, the high end billion dollar donors, the establishment that the that the base, quite frankly, has a beef with. Right. They they are the reason they tacked to Trump back in 2016. So now for them to have a plan B that you think this base is going to go, OK, they got our guy, our Messiah. Right. Our Moses, our, the, the man who's led us to the promised land, that they're just going to go. All right. We're just going to buy into your plan B. That's not how this is going to play out. The, this is this is ride or die for a lot of these folks which is why you see the level of commitment that you have from the base. Yeah, you've got some of the principals now talking, but what are they actually saying? And are they are they more Weisselberg than they are Cohen, right? Are they are they going to, you know, go down for Trump or are they going to give up the goods on Trump? And so my bet is you're going to have less giving up of those goods by these individuals. Uh, and more going down with Trump, which means that the party's got to roll in that direction and deal with the outcome should this thing come to a head before November of 2024, which a lot of us doubt it fully will. Um, right. and, and quite honestly, that's a big bet uh, that the Trump team is making. Um, and you, we're all watching uh, Judge Eileen in, in Florida for uh, Cannon in Florida, for example. So there's a lot, a lot of road that gives these rooms, uh, these folks room not to necessarily have to go to a plan B because plan A is working out so swimmingly. <laughs> Brian, so this is the thing that always gets me about this. 
we have these highfalutin conversations, right? We talk about, okay, indictments and Jack Smith and everything else like that. I'm a college professor at Morgan State University. When I talk to 18, 19-year-olds who live their entire lives on Instagram and TikTok, only some of this trickles down. I, I am fairly confident if I talk to a lot of Zoomers and young millennials I know, they don't even know who Jack Smith is. This is kind of your bailiwick. How much of this trickles down, right? How much of these sort of week-in, week-out details about these investigations are trickling down, and how's it being consumed by sort of younger viewers and Zoomers and things like that? Yeah, I think I think the younger generations have a much higher proclivity to actually engage with this stuff than before. I mean, just with social media unto itself, we're right. able to consume so much more than we used to. I mean, how many kids, when, when even I was in school, were like picking up the newspaper to, to figure <laughs> out what happened? But th- this stuff also impacts us. I mean, to claim that politics doesn't have a massive impact in our lives with everything happening with abortion, with these don't say gay laws, with these LGBT bans, with interstate travel bans that are happening across right. the, that are happening in certain states. I mean, to, to claim that these things don't have a massive impact on young people's lives is just defying reality. And, and, and here's the thing. I also think that you can get more interaction now, right? Like there was a time where it's like, hey, you know, I'm going to write my congressman and maybe he or she will write me back. But if I can scream at somebody directly on Twitter or what's left of Twitter uh, or TikTok, there's yeah. actually a lot more interaction that, that a young voter can get today than in the past. Yeah, they, they don't seem so, I guess, it doesn't seem like such a nebulous concept as it used to in the past. And a lot of these, especially younger Democratic congresspeople and senators are very happy to engage and happy to, to interact with their constituents and just people online. I mean, they they are... I guess that's the difference between what it used to be is a lot of them are younger anyway, and they've right. grown up in this age of, of millennials and Gen Zs. And so uh, and so this is just the new normal. Like it shouldn't be this club, this elitist club where they don't have any interaction with people because, you know, we're at the end of the day, we're the people that have all the power. Right. And the ones voting for them. It's funny. I remember back in my, my young intern days when it was like literally trying to get members of Congress to get emails was difficult. Uh, with that in mind, I want to play a little sound, Joyce, um, about what is actually going on with some of the other people who are heavily involved in this process, right? So we have, uh, you know, we have William Russell. We're also finding out things about Mark Meadows. So I want to play this sound from George Conway on Meadows. Get your thoughts on the other side. I also think that the last possibility to me has always been the most intriguing, which is there are people, are there people who are cooperating? We've seen some very strange quietness from, for example, Mark Meadows. I mean, he, I, I just have the feeling something's going on there. I mean, he's someone who ought to be every bit as exposed as Donald Trump, yet he's been so quiet and they're just, yeah. it just seems like there's something up with him. Joyce, I don't know if silence means guilt. I don't know if silence means he's trying to line up his life for a long time in jail in a jumpsuit. I don't know. But is there something to this? Is there something to the fact that one of the main conspirators, right, somebody who was intimately involved in the process, at least legally, of trying to overthrow the 2020 election, that he hasn't been on the talk circuit, that we haven't heard that much about him? We know he's testified, but other than that, he's been kind of quiet. He's been awfully quiet, and I think George is an astute observer here. Look, Mark Meadows is someone who in some ways makes his um, living by promoting himself and his, his work, his book on, on television. It's surprising to have seen him go to radio silence. That's something that we often see with people who've struck a cooperation deal with the government. That's not the only conclusion that we could reach here. He could simply be trying to keep himself out of it with a low-profile knowing he does have considerable exposure. But the reality is that Mark Meadows was in the mix. 
He appeared to be the gatekeeper and the coordinator for much of the planning that went on in advance of January 6th. He would be a possible target or at least a subject of the government's uh, investigation. And if he has, in fact, agreed to cooperate with the government, he, too, would offer very high value. He's probably the most important cooperator that the government would be able to land because of his access and not only his conversations with the former president, but his constant text messaging with all sorts of people, including a lot of the lawyers who've been identified as part of the fake slates of electors planning and the efforts to use the Justice Department to uh, perpetuate the uh, big lie and the, the notion that there was fraud in the election when there wasn't. So it's a very interesting absence from the public square with Mark Meadows. It's interesting that we are living in a day and age where a president could be taken down by text messages and DMs. My distinguished panel is sticking around because there's still a lot to discuss about Trump's potentially looming indictment. The readout, Jason Johnson sitting in, continues after this. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. My panel is back with me, Joyce Vance, Michael Steele, and Brian Tyler Cohen. Brian, I'll start with you. You make these very, very interesting Easily digestible videos sort of enlightening us to what's going on in our politics right now. I want to play a clip of you fact-checking Marjorie Taylor Greene and kind of talk about the significance of that in our current political environment right afterwards. What Jack Smith is doing is is the weaponized government, and he's weaponizing the Department of Justice against President Trump in a complete lie about President Trump and January 6th. So apparently the weaponization of government isn't an entire political party rushing to the defense of a politician who attempted to use the levers of government to illegally retain his grip on power, who tried to push a fake elector scheme, who tried to pressure the vice president into unilaterally anointing him the winner of an election that he lost, and who incited an insurrection against the seat of government, all that part is totally fine. The real weaponization of government is an independent special prosecutor seeking to hold that politician accountable for his crimes and adhering to the principle that no one is above the law. Did I get that right? So look, 
We know Marjorie Taylor Greene is off. I, I don't even use the nicknames for her because, look, there are several hundred thousand people who actually think she's doing a good job for them. But when you break down her sort of lies and hypocrisy like that, what is that doing to our sort of body politic? Because I, I figure her, her people don't care. Her voters don't care. Republicans don't care. Are there still people out there being persuaded? Are there still people out there that need to know that she's crazy? I think one important element of the Marjorie Taylor Greene of it all is that, you know, a lot of members of the Republican Party have tried to do what they can to enable her to be the face of that party. And so if they're going to push somebody so extreme, so willing to lie, to be the face of the Republican Party, then the last thing I'm going to do is help sanitize that party. If they want to put her forward, then I'm happy uh, to, to, you know, feature her on my videos and debunk uh, the litany of things that she says. If the Republicans want to associate themselves with everybody's crazy aunt, they can do yeah, that, right? right. Exactly. It doesn't necessarily help you when you're going to the voter vote and when you're trying to get people who are much more engaged in the process than they used to be in the past. Uh, with, with that in mind, Michael, I, I want to turn to you. One of the other things that I see, that, and I've said this all along, look, I, I don't think they're a party anymore. I think they're a dime store front for a terrorist organization called MAGA. I am going to say that consistently. But I will say this to you. To the degree that Republicans in Congress are trying to do anything, it doesn't seem like it turns out to be much policy. It seems to be sort of revenge against existing government officials, revenge against agencies. And now this crazy new plan to expunge Trump's impeachment. I want to play you. <laughs> I want to play you McCarthy's audio and get your thoughts about this on the other side. There's no deal, but I've been very clear from long before when I voted against uh, impeachments that they put in for purely political purposes. I support expungement, but there's no deal out there. Now, Michael Steele, to me, voting for expunging an impeachment doesn't make any sense. That's like when you take a championship back from a team for cheating. We all watched it. We know you won. It doesn't matter if you take back the Heisman or the trophies or anything else like that. What is the logic for Republicans in trying to expunge an impeachment, two of them, in fact, that we've all seen. What is McCarthy even talking about here? Well, because Donald Trump called him up and told him that's what he wanted him to do. It's just, <laughs> this is how this works. This is not complicated. It's what the man wants. So that's what we're going to do. Um, policy? We haven't done policy since 2015. Oh, even before that. <laughs> I think the last... Republican administration or to do anything remotely close to policy was the Bush administration, um, whether it was on immigration or, or other things that people, you know, rightly debated back and forth on Democrats, Republicans on the war, et cetera. What, what's our debate been since then? It has not been about policy. It has been a, about uh, the objectifying of political figures, uh, owning the libs, you know, crushing uh, the Biden crime family. <laughs> <laughs> that we made up um, one night because, you know, someone had way too much bourbon. Um, so the reality <laughs> of it is this is what it is. Um, and it doesn't matter uh, what, you know, you say or think about it. It's what they're doing. It's, it's how they're right. going to execute their strategy. And I've always thought this whole Biden crime family thing, it sounds like a bad spinoff on stars. It just doesn't even fit. Of course. Uh, Brian, you said you said you said you had a thought real quick also about this, this whole idea of expungement. I think, I think this is part of this recurring theme of denying reality, mm -hmm. right? For Republicans, just like Donald Trump denied the reality of his loss in 2020, they're doing it again by trying to 
pretend here that that he wasn't impeached twice, even though, to your point, we all saw it. We all know that he was impeached twice. But they want to traffic in this fairy tale. And, uh, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's important for us to recognize that while they may be perfectly content to lie to themselves, the rest of us who do live in reality can see the truth. Right. And we don't want to be lied to on a regular basis. We deal with that enough from all sorts of other outlets. Uh, Jill, I want to make sure that we close on this. It's really important. Uh, there are The New York Times says there are potential Trump charges, including civil rights law used in voting fraud cases. I don't have a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court, like most Americans at this particular point. If it comes down to part of these investigations, uh, part of these charges against Trump have to do with him violating civil rights laws. Do we have much of a chance that we have a legal system right now, if it gets up to SCOTUS, that would actually recognize and and, and respond to that? Or are we going to have to try to get Trump at a lower level in order for any of these charges, potential charges to stick? So this is such a great question, Jason, and it's something that you and I have discussed before. You know, getting a conviction against a defendant, part of that happens in the trial courtroom in front of the jury. But the real final chapter doesn't happen until the conviction is taken on appeal. And the question is, do you have a conviction that can be sustained? So you can be certain that as Jack Smith evaluates his potential charges, something that he will be deeply concerned with is whether there is a strong legal basis, an adequate body of law that supports the charges that he's going to bring on these sorts of facts. And that's the context in which this conversation about 18 U.S. Code 241, the civil rights statute, that we're told Smith intends to use. Of course, that's very likely coming from the Trump camp. No other place we'd be learning the contents of this target letter. But if that's the case, the question is, will it work? And yes, there's a strong body of law. It's a good contender. Joyce Vance, Michael Steele and Brian Tyler Cohen, thank you all so much for starting us today on The Readout. For more of Brian's digital content, head to MSNBC.com slash BTC. Still ahead. A summer of strikes, picketing, and protests that can only mean one thing. Workers are finally fed up with paltry paychecks as CEOs rake in millions per year. This is Jason Johnson sitting in on The Readout. We'll be right back. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. It's hot strike summer, ow, throughout the country, with more than 650,000 American workers threatening to go on strike. There's SAG-AFTRA, that's actors who recently joined screenwriters in demanding fair compensation for their work and not being replaced by robots. I should note that Comcast, the corporation that owns MSNBC's parent company, NBC Universal, is one of the entertainment companies represented by the studio executives they're striking against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, and some employees of NBC Universal are also represented by the Writers Guild. Broadway appears to have 
narrowly averted a strike today with crew members reaching a tentative agreement over salary and rest periods hours after the union announced a vote to walk out. Workers at various Starbucks and Amazon locations have also held strikes over the past month. But the biggest disruption to American commerce could be UPS drivers who could strike by the end of the month, possibly affecting at least 30 percent of packages sent in this country. Oh, and in case you forgot, there's also the transportation industry, the union representing American Airlines flight attendants who haven't received a pay raise in years will hold a vote over the next month to decide whether or not to strike. And the United Auto Workers could follow suit in the fall. Joining me now to discuss all this is Ro Khanna of California, a member of the Congressional Labor Caucus. Congressman, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Look, um, I, I don't think we've seen something like this since like 1877, right? When there was just like massive, massive labor strikes throughout the country. Um, this is significant. And, and, and being on the committee that you're on, I'm sure you're in touch with these unions. You're in contact. Uh, you know, industries around the country are, are, are communicating with Congress what's going on with them. What do you think has caused this sort of hot strike summer, right? We're seeing so many different protests and so many different strikes across the board, across disparate industries. Do you think there's a core cause or people are just getting fed up? The working class is tired of losing in an economy for the past 40 years. I mean, the working class has lost 25 percent of wealth since 1985. I was just with President uh, Sean Fain this morning, the president of UAW, and his point is very, very valid. He's saying the government is giving billions of dollars to these companies. Big three, the automakers, they're making tremendous profits. Workers shouldn't just be paid 16 bucks. They should be paid the wages they were paid when they worked in the auto industry under electric vehicles. I met with the folks at the Teamsters Union. They're saying, look, when you have part-time workers, part-time workers shouldn't just be making 13, 14 dollars. These aren't the UPS drivers who are come to your house who are often paid well. These are the folks at the airports and warehouses and they're being treated awfully. They need to be paid fairly. And then this, the actors and uh, writers, I've been out with them. And what they're saying is 87% of them make less than $26,000. Pay them so they can at least afford it to get health care. You know, Congressman, I want to go down industry by industry. We'll start. We'll start with the actors. One of the key issues, you know, when we talk about auto workers, we've said, hey, automation, you know, you had people being put out of work because you had different kinds of machinery. But one of the things that screenwriters and actors are talking about is artificial intelligence, right? Everybody calls it AI. I call it plagiarism machines because you can't have AI <laughs> unless it's drawing from things that already sort of exist one way or another. And, and what we've seen is not just a matter of actors saying, hey, I don't want you, a studio, to take my image and then recreate it to continue seven series of a show that you're no longer paying me for. It's not just writers saying, hey, I don't want you to create an AI script using things that I've written before and then not pay me for it. What they're also pointing out is the fact that the corporations and the studios, they don't even want to talk about AI. What do you do when you're sort of looking at these kind of labor conflicts? What do you suggest or what do you advise in situations where the, the, the employer doesn't even want to talk about innovation with the labor that could be replaced or lose their salaries because of it? 
Well, as a representative from Silicon Valley, I understand AI and the workers, the writers, the actors are absolutely right to say they should be part of how AI is used. There are two central concerns, one which you alluded to, which is if you're going to feed information into this AI magic box and then it's going to spit out new content, the content that you're feeding in, that should be compensated. If writers are writing scripts, if they're writing plays, and then AI is just tinkering with it, those initial scripts need to be compensated. And the second thing is you don't want AI replacing writers, because what that's going to do is devolve the standard of entertainment. Uh, AI can't write Ted Lasso. It can't write Succession. It probably could write bad reality TV. Uh, and the writers are saying, look, we want to have some human input. If We can use it for our uh, advantage, but we shouldn't be uh, subjugating the entire country to AI written products. And I think they're very reasonable. I want to, this real quick before we run up to break. One thing that just, just got me here about UPS workers who might go on strike by the end of the month. One of the basic things they're asking for, yes, they want part-time employees to be paid more. They just want air conditioning in their trucks. <laughs> We're having one of the hottest summers on record. Just talk about some of the, the basic things that people are asking for. That's, that's not crazy, is it? It's not crazy. I mean, they want air conditioning. I mean, in, in Texas, my colleague Greg Cesar is going to be uh, out in front of the Capitol steps saying that people should be have a worker law that you get uh, drinking water. I mean, can you imagine the governor there is taking away the requirement to give workers uh, drinking water in this heat? And, and UPS drivers are saying uh, have air conditioning, have brakes so that we can be healthy. Uh, look, workers have had enough. They understand that this country hasn't been working for them for 40 years good for them for standing up. And the American public is behind them. Many people in Congress are behind them. And I hope they're going to finally uh, make change in this country so they get what they deserve. This isn't asking for charity. They're creating value. And that value is not coming to them. They deserve what they're asking for. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Florida ramps up its war on reality with a new school curriculum touting, I am not making this up, the benefits of being a slave. This is Jason Johnson on The Readout. We'll be right back. Free housing, permanent employment, and all-you-can-eat cornbread. Board of Education of Florida wants you to see that job description and think, you know, maybe slavery wasn't so bad. Look, it's one thing for racist legislators trying to erase black history, but now they've just decided they're going to rewrite it. Florida middle school students will now be taught that slavery gave black people a, quote, personal benefit because they, quote, develop skills, you know, skills that they weren't paid for. Meanwhile, high school students will be taught that a deadly 1920 attack against black residents of Ocosi, Ocosi, uh, Florida, was perpetuated by African-Americans as well as white people. Stairs and Rosewood. What else is going to be admitted? Well, Ku Klux Klan members and other white supremacists that had overt support from local government killing dozens of black people and residents to stop them from voting. That, that stuff isn't going to be included. It's no wonder a liberal arts college in Florida is now facing a massive resignation. New College of Florida is losing a third of its faculty, according to the Tampa Bay Times, Many of those teachers and researchers are frustrated and dismayed by the school's new conservative leadership. 
Joining me now to discuss all this is Kimberly Crenshaw, law professor at Columbia University and UCLA and executive director of the African-American Policy Forum. Her new book, Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence, came out this week. We're going to discuss that, too, in a moment. Uh, Professor Crenshaw, I want to start with this. As an academic, I am a professor at Morgan State University. You're teaching at multiple universities. What is the sort of negative long-term consequences of what we're seeing in Florida? What does it mean to dumb down the education of children at a high school level and then back that up by threatening professors at the university level? What does that do to a state? What does that do to a community? Well, Absolutely. This is the the end game that we've been talking about for the last two years. The anti-woke cabal is moving from we weren't responsible for the bad thing to it wasn't that bad after all. This is the exemplary example of what happens when you apply both sidesism to the brutality of American enslavement. This is basically saying, look, um, slavery uh, was was you know, uh, sort of complicated. Uh, Yeah, people were owned by other people. Yeah, we were able to work them uh, to death. Yeah, uh, slaves existed for the pleasure uh, and the profit of individuals. But on the other hand, there is no other hand, right? There just is no other hand. But this is the game that they have been playing, trying to both sides, racism and white supremacy, trying to unname it, and then trying to indoctrinate our children into believing that the past wasn't so bad. So there's not much we have to do about it today. This is what anti-wokeism is all about. And, And one of the key things is that psychologist research and academic research has shown that teaching white children about the true history of this country and racism and violence against black people, what it tends to lead to in young people is greater empathy towards others. It does not lead to a sense of guilt. It does not lead to white kids going home and crying to their parents. It's their parents who are crying. It's not the students, right? This is exactly what Tim Wise was saying. We were on a a panel uh, last weekend at Netroots, and he pointed out, look, if you tell the true history, the full history uh, of American society and the efforts to remake it, you have stories about white people who were on the right side of history. You have stories about white people who said, I'm not going to participate in this system that dehumanizes other uh, human beings. So if you are worried about how your children are going to think about white people, you're not teaching the white people who actually were on the right side of what this American country could actually be. Uh, Professor Crenshaw, your latest book is specifically focused on women and African-American women who have been victims of of vigilante violence and police brutality and violence. Uh, You know, there's a page from your book showing some of the photos and names of black women killed by state violence. Um, You know, Tanisha Anderson, who was shot by the same police force that took Tamir Rice's life. Maya Hall, a black transgender woman who was killed by the NSA in Baltimore just days before killing Freddie Gray. Talk a little bit about the significance of this book and why we have to make sure that we don't sort of fall into the trap of, you know, all blacks are men and all women are white. We, we, we need to talk about the intersectionality of state-sponsored violence against people of color. Well, you put your finger on exactly the conceptual gap that black women and girls who are victims of anti-black police violence fall into. Look, we need people to know and understand that black women and girls and femmes, 
are all subject to anti-Black police violence, full stop. This is not an exclusively male phenomenon. Yet, because the frameworks that we have um, are non-intersectional frameworks, we tend to think only men when we think about uh, uh, police violence. But in reality, uh, Black girls as young as seven, Black women as old as 93 have been killed by the police. They've been killed having a mental uh, uh, health episode. They've been killed... Uh, in their homes, all the same kind of things that happened right. while Black that our brothers experienced, so do our sisters. So this book calls attention to the full scope of anti-Black police violence to make a more holistic approach to understanding the vulnerability so we can fix the problem. Kimberly Crenshaw, thank you so much for all the work that you do. Really appreciate you joining us tonight on Readout. Pleasure Conservatives, Thank you. Conservatives open up a new front in the culture war, rallying around, center, uh, rallying around singer Jason Aldean after his pro-vigilante violence video gets yanked from country music television. We'll be back to discuss in a sec. You might have noticed that MAGA Republicans like to censor minority communities in America. They say they don't want woke ideology shoved down their throats. So they do things like cancel Bud Light for sending a can of beer to a transgender influencer, uh, which led to Kid Rock shooting a case of the beer, even though he was still selling it in his bar. They canceled Target because it dared to sell Pride Month merchandise. And they outlawed drag queens because they don't like something the people have been doing for centuries. Now they're going after the new Barbie film, which folks over on Fox claim pushes, quote, toxic femininity and China. I kid you not. According to Senator Ted Cruz, Barbie is a pro-China is pro-China propaganda because of a crayon map depicted in the film. I have not seen the movie. I've just seen the, the stupid map. This is really designed for the eyes of the Chinese censors, and they're trying to kiss up to the Chinese Communist Party because they want to make money selling the movie in China. Canceling has become their thing, but don't dare say a peep about the new music video from country singer Jason Aldean, which says this, cuss out a cop, spit in his face, stomp on the flag and light it up. Yeah, you think you're tough. Got a gun that my granddad gave me. They say one day they're going to round up. Well, that stuff might fly in the city. Good luck. Try that in a small town. Music video shows Aldean interspiced with news clips of protests out of context. It promotes vigilantism and was filmed in front of the Maury County Courthouse in Columbia, Tennessee, the site of the 1946 Columbia Race Massacre and the 1927 mob lynching of an 18-year-old black teenager. I guess he doesn't know that because many conservatives are canceling black history, too. Joining me now to discuss is Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and contributor to the Los Angeles Times, and Juanita Tolliver, MSNBC political analyst and co-host of Cricket Media's What a Day podcast. Kurt, I'm going to I'm going to start with you. You are my country music Sherpa. Uh, we went to the Academy of Country Music Awards earlier this year. This is your area. Uh, I think I was wearing the same blazer. Uh, just, just put this in, in context here. Like, what is Jason Aldean talking about? I understand a sort of hokey. Hey, small town life is different than the big city. I get that. That's that's a common thing in country music. But why are people so angry about it? And why is he getting so defensive since it seemed like a pretty obvious dog whistle about what he wanted to talk about? 
Well, Jason, I think number one, what he's talking about is this kind of conservative right wing fantasy that everybody else is after them to take things from them, that you have to protect your quote unquote small town values because those big city coastal elites are going to try to take things from you. And the things that you see in big cities, whatever those are, they apparently don't happen in small towns. Now, let me just point out just for the record that I think Uvalde, Texas is a small town where a gun massacre happened. But be that as it may, that's the the, the terminology, the vocabulary, uh, and that culture war rift that we're seeing turned into melody and music. And it's designed to ultimately provoke a conversation, sell records, sell streams. And that's exactly what's going to happen, by the way. It's not an accident that within 24 hours of this controversy erupting that this song and this music video were both number one on iTunes. And Juanita, here's the thing. I actually don't have a problem with music being controversial. I mean, that's what music is. That's what art is. It's not supposed to always be something that we like. But I think the concern that, that people who are criticizing the song are having is, look, you, we're, we're now in a society where people take this kind of music and they act upon it. They feel galvanized by it. They feel that this is a rationale for vigilante violence. Is that something that we need to take into consideration that maybe some of the people who are vigorously defending country music don't recognize it's not an attack on the genre. It's, it's, it's questions about the impact of this kind of music. Not even questions. You've already drawn the through line, Jason. There's evidence that demonstrates that that's what happens. And so to reject that is to gaslight the rest of us, to pretend as though oh, we're just making this up. We're imagining it. No, like you said, the history of the courthouse that he chose to film in front of to play dumb about that in retrospect is ridiculous. And all the Republicans backing him up are buying into that same same reality of, okay, we're going to do racist things. We're going to do harmful things that target violence towards black and brown people or anyone who's different from us and then tell them that it's their fault. Right. That's the energy that comes through in this video, in this song. And let's be real. I knew something was up based on the title, Jason. Like, I know what a sundown town <laughs> is. And so I was like, yeah, this ain't for me at all. Now, uh, Juanita, I'm going to stay with you for a second. I'm, I'm pointing this out. Full disclosure. I have a Barbie doll. I have a 1983 black <laughs> Barbie on, doll who was an astronaut before Mae Jemison. It was, it was, the doll was made before Mae Jemison was the first black woman in yes. space. I, I've got to ask you, when, when you hear this controversy, Republicans saying, oh, my gosh, we hate the Barbie movie. You know, Juanita, like, what does that say? Are, are they so bankrupt for ideas that they want to run after this doll? I mean, if you want to make the argument that maybe Barbie dolls are made in another country and they're not American enough, that's one thing. But the idea that Barbie is... Chinese propaganda seems like a bankrupt party looking for a way to stay in the news. Exactly right. This is a fight for relevance. And so what Ted Cruz is doing here is trying to latch on to the latest big cultural phenomenon moment to try to be relevant. But the reality is nobody likes Ted Cruz. And people definitely aren't going to like him for attacking Barbie. So he can move from Barbie to Big Bird to Bud Light. And Ted Cruz, we still don't like you. Kurt, and this is the other part of this that, that sort of shocks me. I, I, on my podcast, A Word of Me, to talk about at the end of the show, I did this whole breakdown with talking about like the history of Black Barbie, the importance of these kinds of images to young people. When you see Republicans attacking, as one you mentioned, attacking Big Bird, attacking toys, attacking beloved cultural characters, doesn't it just make them seem out of touch? Doesn't it just make them seem like a bunch of stick in the muds when everybody else is trying to find something to do in the middle of the summer to brighten their days in the middle of 95 degree heat? 
Yeah, because I also think that when you make these kind of attacks against toys and puppets, I think it leaves a lot of parents wondering, why are you spending so much time, energy, oxygen, talking about these really superfluous things, when at the same time, we're worried to death that our kids aren't going to come home from school alive because they're going to get shot at today. And you have nothing to say about anything like that. You have nothing to do about making sure that we actually have a safe environment for our kids. It's so hilarious to watch these Republicans talk about being pro-life, talk about children and making sure that they have the right books and toys and cultural items. Yet they don't want to lift the damn finger to do anything to keep them alive. Kurt Bardella and Juanita Tolliver, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. If you'd like to learn more about Barbie or you're just going to go see the movie this weekend, definitely check out my podcast, A Word with Jason Johnson on Slate. For more on the history of Barbie, I'm joined by Legeria Davis, writer, producer, and creator of the new film Black Barbie, a documentary. It's really fun. I learned a lot. You'll definitely enjoy it. That is tonight's Readout. Joy returns tomorrow to celebrate the Readout's birthday You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.